616-748-6958. And Studio B is 716-748-0112. Thank you very much for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station in the world. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host... Welcome to Nightlight. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. A quiet hawk for that unique intro, which I absolutely adore. Um, we have an amazing show tonight for you. I have Rick Osmond here as my guest, and he was selected for the U.S. Air Force Academy right out of high school. He worked for defense contractors a number of years and then took a job with the U.S. Navy as a civilian with an engineer, with engineering support field activities specializing in radar, night vision, and laser equipment for surveillance and munitions guidance. But all those years, Rick was also reading everything he could find about the weird and unusual history, archaeology, paleontology, ge- geography, cart- cartography, cryptozoology, cryptography, and hollow earth theory. After leaving government employment in 2004, he began his hunt for hidden knowledge full-time. His current projects, research, uses satellite imagery, LIDAR analysis, 
hydrology studies, and many other clues to find or identify ancient structures that are pretty much hidden to more traditional detection techniques. He also uses terrain analysis techniques to to assess line-of-sight capability across the landscape fixtures, features, sorry, either natural or artificial, that would enable long-distance communication using ancient materials and technologies. These results are compared to the analogous system used in the old world contemporaneously. God, my tongue is not with us tonight. He writes a regular feature for Ancient American Museum magazine entitled Ancient Fortresses of the Ohio Valley. And in it, he's written about both accepted archaeology and counterculture traditions. This has gone to the point of historical cabrals that hide certain history. His book, The Graves of the Golden Bear, is a must read for anybody that cares about what the real history of this country was. Certainly there was so much prior to the 16th century when when we were invaded by the English and the French, but prior to that, the, the, uh, the history of the country is phenomenal. And if you really want to be well-informed and enlightened like crazy, this is a book you must read. It's available on Amazon and his website. He can be found at www.ancientamerica.com. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you for having me. We've been trying to do this for a very long time. We just never got Yes, we have. <laughs> I, I, things keep getting in people's way, but I'm really glad that we're, we're able to to do tonight because your book is just fascinating. I, I, it, I, I think that people will be so fascinated by the fact that there were so many different cultures here, so many different um, stratas of, of all sorts of, of cultures that, that were here in the United States well before we were discovered. Of course, we were never lost, but, but it just, there's so much history that the, the history books are not teaching and people should be aware of it. Many of the history teachers simply are not aware of it because their doctrine is with it. Yeah. It's a sad but true fact that you can't get much of this information into a high school history book that will actually be published. Well, there are people, there are many people who are trying to do that, not just me, there's a whole group of us. Wow, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it's a group of researchers who have um, gone in force to try to get some of this the published works to endure. Yeah. Are, do you have a headset on, Rick? I, I do. Okay. Because you sound far away. <laughs> okay, maybe I can improve that some. Oh, you, yes, you made magic happen. Um, well, as an, as an ex-school teacher, I taught for 25 years. I know the kind of politics that go into putting textbooks together. Yes, and, on both the publishers, because there are only two major publishers of these textbooks. Yeah, well, they kind of have a little corner on the market. Yep. But but it just, just you know, I... I don't really know where to start because because according to carbon dating, a lot of a lot of the different material that has been found in this country goes back at least nine thousand years. Oh, indeed, uh, and some of it a lot further than that. So far that C fourteen dating is ineffective. It, it is not 
uh, capable of finding a date for some of the materials that have been unearthed. Oh, that's for right. Six- they, yeah, they found a skull that was 240,000 years old. Well, yeah, but they can't directly carbon date that because you can only go to about 50,000 years with carbon date. Wow. Well, but yeah, uh, they, they found sites in Mexico and Brazil and uh, Chile and possibly in uh, British Columbia that exceed 70, 130, 210,000 years. And, and, and we. Yeah. yeah and, and, and the textbooks say that Columbus discovered America and he never put a foot on the soil of this country. Well, that's true. Not, not on the mainland. He did not. He was. Uh, he invaded some outer islands and took <laughs> off. Yeah, and, and I think that maybe that should be changed too because when when these explorers came here, they were invasion-oriented. Um, they were here to get the gold and the fountain of youth and everything else. They weren't here to really discover new territory. And, and they, they sort of gave everybody the impression that it was not inhabited while it was totally inhabited by 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 millions of of people yes and, uh, and, as one example cahokia in uh-huh. 1000 ad you know this is this is the the large uh, civic complex most people would call it a mound complex it's a civic complex in far western illinois along the mississippi river and about 1000 ad it had a larger population that did London, what is today London, England. It had a larger population than Hamburg in Germany. It had a larger population than Amsterdam in Netherlands. Well, it, you know, a lot of your study has to do with, with you know, that region of the country. What is it about that particular part of the country that um, that's seem to draw people to it because that's where that's where the the you know the that area that you're talking about seems to be where there's i mean i i know it's where you live and it's where you've investigated but you certainly haven't restricted yourself to that that area why well, is everything's it? connected and, yeah, okay. and, and in particular that area around cahokia is connected via the mississippi drainage basin to about one-third of the entire north american continent yeah so about a third of any goods that flowed out of this continent would have gone past that point on the river. Gotcha. Because that, that was the only highways they had. They did have some overland routes, but they couldn't carry a lot of goods because they didn't have, according to archaeology, a wheel mm-hmm. or a beast of burden or any way to do massive freight. But they could sure build boats. And when still on Columbus, when Columbus arrived, in the Caribbean, he was met by the Carib Indians, who were seven feet tall, and there were about 20 of them in each of their canoes. Now, if you've ever been in a canoe, um, you don't yeah. get 20 people in a canoe. <laughs> you, no. you, you rarely get three people in a canoe. Yeah, not so unless it's were, a big canoe. Right, and these were these canoes were longer than the ships that Columbus sailed over. Yeah, that's. I think that that's a fact. You know, when... When people think of the Nina de Pinta and the Santa Maria, they think of huge ships. They weren't even 100 feet long. No, they weren't. They were tiny. They were yeah. flotsam by comparison to some of the ships that the Chinese had floated just a few years before, 70 years before. Yeah, but that hit the West Coast. But but what happened? I mean, all right. So well, it, the- it also hit the South Coast. 
they also the Chinese also made it up to Mississippi. There's a couple who did some very very good research into that area, uh, and it's Lori and Mark Nicholas. They, they uh-huh. live in DeSoto, Missouri, and they've researched this to the point of actually going to China and reading the original texts. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, it's a fascinating history, and it, that one truly is a written history. It's not you know word of mouth. Um, so there is a vast history of quote unquote discovery exploration long before Columbus, but Columbus gets the credit. And, uh, and that is, I believe for a very political reason, it has absolutely nothing to do with reality. Well, what is that reason? You know, (laughs) okay. It all goes back to what is called a papal bull. And this one is from 1452 and its title is terra nullis meaning literally empty land but that doesn't mean empty of resources it only means empty of christians so if you go to a place and you don't find any christians there it is free for the taking <laughs> okay but didn't and, did, no wait but didn't didn't a lot of the cultures that actually were here before didn't they plant some sort of uh, land um, you know, claim on, claim. on not yeah. only claims, but also markers for those claims. And yes, right. they did, but those are ignored because the people who must acknowledge them are also the people who are trying to guard their own sovereignty of government. Wow. <laughs> you see, it just, you know, it, it, when I, I people, I, I think have to really begin to realize that this was a teeming nation full of commerce, full of, full of civilizations and, and innovation and, and technologies that are not even acknowledged by our current crop of uh, scholars. That's the right word, scholars. One of, one of the, the big things are, are of course, the, the copper mines um, up, up near Light Superior. Now, did they come in through the lake to get that copper, or did they come up the Mississippi as well? I believe... I, I think I can show that they had at least three or four different routes that they used, both for ingress and egress. One of them would have been through Hudson Bay down the Red River. This isn't my research. I did not originate this. I uh-huh. am bringing it back up from other people's research, including Marion Dom, whose airplane is sitting outside this building. Here. Anyway. <laughs> well, now, Marion, how long ago was that? How, how far back can you take the copper mining? Uh, about 9,000 years, eight or 9,000 years, contemporaneously with what is called the red paint people. Now, the mm-hmm. red paint people didn't leave us a whole bunch of copper artifacts, only one that I know of, and it's sketchy on whether it's actually red paint people. But these people would go out into the deep ocean and hunt sea mammals and come home with them. That means they knew how to not only sail, but also to navigate. Wow. <laughs> yeah, seven, eight, nine thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we also have the cases of places like uh, Australia that was populated 60,000 years ago, and you still can't walk there. And you couldn't then, and you can't now, and you never will be, probably. You have places, uh, Crete in the Mediterranean. It was populated, human, or at least tool makers, call them human, call them whatever you want, 120,000 years ago. You have tools in Brazil that are in 200,000-year-old strata. 
Calico yeah. Hills in California, similar age. So, so, and that's the other thing I think that, that you, you bring up and you point out so, so artfully in your book that, that these different cultures that were here were, were not stupid people. They were not, and for, for a lot of the part, they were people that actually had um, a written alphabet. Uh, or at least some form of remembering. Yeah. That, that's all our writing system is, is a way to remember in detail something that has happened or been said or whatever. You know, it could be a recipe. It could be a sentence to death. All those things are written down and passed to someone who can read them rather than, hey, I'm going to go over to so-and-so's and show them how to, you know, make this salad. Yeah. No, it, detailed instructions. So, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is these were highly developed cultures these were not just wanderer gatherers, as as you know, a lot of a lot of history books talk about. You know, they were they were the wanderers gatherers. These were people that had cities, that had forts, that had walls, that 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 had much more than the colonists had when they came here. Yeah, they and also that, had the and equally as important in my view is they also had things like songs and art and history. They had their own oral history, whether they had a written history or not, they had their history. And it is unfair and unsafe for anyone to believe that that oral history is flawed. Yeah. And and so why? I mean, I understand, you know, the Christian stuff and everything, but, but, but that was long in the past, you know, we're, we're supposedly in, and, and I, and I choke when I say this an enlightened time, because I feel we're in the dark ages. I really do. But, but this is a time where, where we should be teaching our children truth and we're not. We should always be striving for that. But you know, in in order to teach it, you first have to know it. And this takes us back to who's teaching it. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah it is a big circle and it's a huge vicious circle as well um, you know there are researchers in this field who are far more experienced or, or at least were before they you know worked themselves to death trying mm-hmm. to achieve what I, what may never be achievable but we keep trying because we believe in it we believe that it is a just cause um, well- well, you know, with carbon dating, with LIDAR, with all of the tools that you have available to you now, it would seem to me that, that, that the element of proof to some degree is, is more easily proven now than it was 20 years ago. It's more easily uh, portrayed. Proven is an entirely different etymology. <laughs> uh, yeah. I I can portray it. I can display it. I can explain it. I can show you. I can take you out here and point to another hilltop because I'm on a hilltop and I can say that is four and a half miles away. If you go over there and you use this mirror and you send me a message and we can do it in about three minutes training. Yes. (laughs) And and I'm not talking about Morse code. here. No. And yeah. And and just just explain a little bit how how the, the element of, of the mirror and the light and everything was used, how, you know, how it goes back in time. It's not something that's new. It's something that has been utilized for thousands of years. 
quite literally 5,000 years that I can trace, probably longer, but 5,000 years with very solid evidence, including, you know, written evidence. Uh, Polybius, in 146 BC, he was the only guy who actually wrote an eyewitness account of the fall of Carthage to Rome, and he was a hostage to Rome himself for, what, 17 years. But he told us, keystroke for keystroke, how they sent messages using torches or reflected sunlight, just with a number of pulses of light set mm -hmm. up in a, a certain way to represent, in that case, two different alphabets, because he used a Greek alphabet as his native, and the Latin alphabet is his hostage life. So he was, uh, first of all, he was a genius, both in these sciences as well as political science, because, well, he kept his head till he died a natural death mm -hmm. uh, as a Roman hostage. Anyway, but he, he gave us a very solid history of the entire fall of Carthage, and this was an integral part of the military military campaign was the communications and today still in the military it's shoot move communicate shoot move communicate it's what you do and it's and it has been that way since rome created a professional army that's the only creation that is truly theirs everything else they stole borrowed acquired through conquest mm -hmm. including the arts of making the best concrete better than we can make today <laughs> Um, you know, you, you bring up Rome and, and the, the one part that, that I, I got, I was so tickled with was the ninth infantry. Um, the, the, the ninth, yeah, the ninth Roman legion. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, they're, they're an interesting group. They were formed basically by Julius Caesar uh, in the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, then they became a full-grown legion and they acquired Macedonia. Then they acquired parts of Gaul and Germany and back into Iberia and North Africa. So you had all of these cultures contributing to the culture of the Ninth Roman Legion. And then in 43 AD, they went with Claudius into Britain. And uh, in 117 AD, they ceased to exist in history, but they were not decommissioned. They were not relocated. There's no record of any of that. They simply are no longer mentioned. Wow. Except for, except for one character, and his name was uh, Lucius Aemilius Carus, and he was an officer with the Ninth when they were at York in 108, and he was in 142 the governor of the city of Petra. We call it Petra. They called it Arabia Petraeus. Mm -hmm. So he went from being a mid-level officer and disappearing with his unit. Then 25 years later, he has a governorship. You know, this is like the plum appointment. This is like, uh, hey, you want to be, um, let's see, director, yeah, the Department of Defense. You, you can be the Department of Defense. Secretary of Defense. No, no, you're Secretary of Commerce. Yeah, that's it because, well, Petra is on the Silk Road and you have to go through that very narrow valley that you saw in one of the uh, Indiana Jones movies. Crescent Moon Valley. You know, with the last night. Yeah. Okay, that's a real place. And that facade is carved from the living rock. 
before the Romans ever got there. It was already carved, but they improved it. <laughs> Carus, in his histories, he dug into a cave that was very near that treasure. He didn't give a good location for it. Fast forward to 1170 AD, and the Knights Templar are occupying that treasury and looking for that cave. At the same time that some of their compadres are in Jerusalem looking through Solomon's temple. Uh They're all looking for something. And I think they found it actually at Petra. And I believe it was, well, a map to North America. And they ended up at Oak Island. Oh, my goodness. Uh, That is actually the subject of a new book. It's out. uh, I don't know. It's been out four or five months now. Um, Gina Halpern wrote a book about it. She did a great job, my dad. But the entire Ninth Roman Legion thing is uh, compelling because you can't prove differently. Not yet, anyway. There's no, there's no known evidence that puts them any place as a unit. A few individuals, yes. But when they were with Julius Caesar, it probably wasn't just them. It was actually, I believe, three full legions and a few attaches. They built a bridge across the Rhine River to go after the Germans. And they did it in 10 days. I don't, yeah, that, know, if ever, I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's quite a river. No. I, I, that, that in itself is, is really impressive because these guys were not just soldiers. They were... They were able to build things they were able to forage for the for the um materials and their horses were not only used for battle but for 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 dragging things and i mean they were quite a legion yes and they had wagons and they had um but each each squad we'll call them squads they, they had different terms but those terms won't stick with they don't even stick with me let alone with most of the audience these squads were, they had specialized jobs um, within the squad. You know, like this guy is the smithy. He can work metal. This guy's a carpenter. He can work wood. This guy, uh, he can work stone. And out of the eight people in the squad, all the jobs were covered. And if they went to, say, York, and they were going to build a wooden fortress and get it done in 18 days, which they did, everybody knew their job. They just went, mm-hmm. cut the trees, notched them the way they went together. And bang, they had a fort that they knew also how to defend. Wow. And they and they had weapons that went well beyond their, you know, famous short sword or a bow. No, they had what they called ballista. This is like a catapult kind of, but it could shoot, you know, big arrows, uh, broom-sized arrows, or uh, rocks that could weigh 100 pounds. The, the, the assault on Masada, the siege at Masada, they had what they called a one-talent caliber. Yes, they used that word, a caliber. Ballista that would throw a one-talent somewhere between 76 and 100 pounds, depending on whose version you're reading and believe. Stone, spherical, nice, you know, nice finish. Yeah. And it would throw it a quarter of a mile. Whoops, and it would go up an eighth of a mile and downrange a quarter of a mile because... Masada is an eighth of a mile above the plane around. <laughs> yeah, it's it's up there. Yeah. So they built machines that could bombard it from, you know, a quarter of a mile away, well outside the range of anything 
that the Jews could throw at them. And eventually they took it by siege. Well, they didn't they build a ramp up to it too? They certainly did. But they also kept everybody off the ramparts. Wow. <laughs> remarkable. And, uh, it is remarkable. The engineering, the skills, the, the not just engineering, architecture, and, and the, the, the skills of the smithies and the carpenters and everybody that uh, probably went, you know, as far as you had someone who was a seamstress. Now, this person, male or female, was not part of the legion. But that person traveled with the Legion because they had a good full-time job. Uh-huh. And that went to, you know, anywhere from four to 15,000 people supporting a Legion who were not actually part of the Legion. They were camp followers in mod- more modern terms. Yeah. And it would include, you know, traveling brothels. And it would include bakers and uh, candlestick makers and... <laughs> Well, that would that would kind of explain, you know, if they did indeed come to this country, some of the the, the buildings that that you know, especially in the Ohio Valley, the fortresses that are there, are more likely Roman construction than they are anything else, aren't they? Well, they have some elements certainly that are very familiar in, in Roman architecture. But they also have other elements that are unknown in Roman architecture. So, I have to conclude that you got some of each. You have some that are either older from a different European culture, or older from a different Asian culture, or maybe it's just a different American culture that nobody has recognized yet, and the Romans came in and built on top of it. Because the terrain hasn't changed all that much. You get on these bluffs along these rivers, that's where that fortress must be, and that is the same place it had to be 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, you know, so many people think of, okay, so the company, the country just had Indians scattered around it, but that that wasn't the case, and, you know, it, oh. it's evidence shows that there was even a culture of giants, and then there was even a culture of little people, uh, yep. uh, which I did not know about. I, I sat there with my jaw falling open because I knew about the giants and the mound builders and stuff. I did not know about the little people. So share with us about that because that is too much. <laughs> it, it is interesting. And it's also one of the most durable bits of Native American folklore that you can find. Uh, Some of the details change, but the description of not only their physical makeup, but also their behaviors, uh, because they're universally called a trickster. Um, Uh And there are some of them magical abilities, certainly, at least some of the Great Lakes tribes describe magical abilities. Yep. Um, And most interesting to me is the etymology of the name throughout tribes, the Algonquin, uh, many of the other tribes, the Iroquois, they will call them some variation of Pukwudgeni. And Pukwudgee, Pukwudgeni, Pukwudgeen. Um, and if you go back to the Middle East, 
those people and their language described the same small stature, swarthy skin trickster as the djinn or the genius. So the two syllables of that are pervasive in the North American names of these people, these tiny people. And and these were not anomalies. These were whole cities of them and they were two to four feet high. And yes. And and apparently uh, someone discovered several graveyards of them, and, and it, they were very numerous. Right. One was in Middle Tennessee, and they dug up something like 900 graves. They had 900 specimens. I didn't say it was full skeletal specimens or what. But they estimated that there were at least 7,500 people buried in this particular necropolis. And they actually used that word, which is... That verboten in American archaeology. <laughs> but the most interesting feature there was they were all buried standing up. Oh, wow. And there was a similar burial ground near um, uh, Kachokton, Ohio. And it was on the order of 4,000 graves, possibly more. And they also for the most part, were buried standing up, but not all of them. Some were in a kneeling position. A few were actually in pots. Now, uh, have they been able to carbon date the skeletons at all? They haven't been able to find them. Just like the giants. Just like the giants. (laughs) They went to the same place, huh? (laughs) Apparently so, yes. Oh, my Uh, gosh. Now, there is a tale. I, I haven't been... I have not been able to verify it to my own satisfaction. So this is speculation or how, whatever word you want to ascribe to it. That the late Barry Fell, Dr. Barry Fell, went to the Smithsonian and used his credentials as a marine biologist to get into the ossuary stacks of the Smithsonian. And he found several of these specimens. And he was able to verify that these were not five to seven year old children. Yeah. These were 50 to some cases, 80 years of age at death. And they suffered all kinds of arthritis. Uh, Although since his study of that, uh, it's come to light that Lyme disease spread by ticks will Mm -hmm. cause the same, same osteo uh, symptoms in death. At least. Wow. So, so do we have a time? You know, I keep, you know, I, 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 und- I know the giants were here. I'm not sure time frame. I know this culture was here. I'm not sure time frame. How do you? Is there some sort of a timeline where you can put all of these different cultures that that actually hit hit this country? Um, I think I can safely say that some time ago. Beyond okay. that, I, 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 I can't put a number on it. Within the last 9,000 years, in other words. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly within that time frame. Almost okay. certainly. Okay, okay. But we also have the evidence, for the little people at least, from the, uh, the Flores Island group, the, the so-called hobbits of Flores Island. Yeah. Who, who are the same stature, uh, have similar description of the wrists, and the cheekbones that Barry Feld ascribed to the specimens he studied. Although, at the time he was studying, no one knew about Forest Island. 
which I find to oh, that that's like, hey, that's pretty good stuff, Barry. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, he was all over the place. Let me tell you, he seems to be the only expert anybody paid any attention to for a while. Yeah. Well, and you know, he 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 was take he was fooled a couple times too. We all get fooled now. Oh sure. I mean, but, look uh, at. But he was he was diligent about it. Well, what what one of the things that I found fascinating was the use of mirrors and how if they didn't have mirrors, they had um, mica, and they were able to use them to signal. And I mean, the the and, and what blows the mind is that you know their their territory was so vast that you had to signal other areas to let everybody know something was going on or something was coming. So so even with a written language, if you didn't have some way of transmitting it other than runners or or boatmen, you still had a long wait for an answer. Now, Claudius, in 43, when he went to Britain, he discovered right quick that he was about a legion shy of having enough troops to actually do what he wanted to do. So he sent a message back to Rome saying, I need you to dispatch another legion from Gaul to come and meet me here, just at the south end of close to Dover. And according to the history, that message arrived in Rome on the same date that he sent it. Pigeon? (laughs) (laughs) Something rather rapid. I would say (laughs) Yeah, um, so I used that and I went into, okay, what do more modern records show for that kind of technology? And the U.S. Army in the 1860s to 1910s, actually they still have some of the gear in their inventory, used a heliograph, captures sunlight, bounces it to a recipient of a message. Mm -hmm. And they used a shutter, basically, to interrupt that sunbeam. And they used Morse code as the encryption method, which, you know, starting in the Civil War, uh, the enemy knew Morse code. Uh-huh. So, uh, and a lot of that happened right in here because John Hunt Morgan crossed the river not too far from here, across the Ohio River into Indiana and almost immediately started sending false telegraph messages <laughs> no. to, mis- to misdirect the U.S. intelligence services and arm and, and he was very successful at it. in fact those methods are still taught at West Point well I think one of the main things that that, that comes to light in, in especially reading your book it, you know we think about 9,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago even that that the people couldn't possibly have been as intelligent as we are today. And the reality is they may have been even more so. Very much more so. And not just more intelligent, also more sophisticated. Uh-huh. And it's hard to actually describe what that difference is, but you can be very intelligent, but if, you, if you're not aware of, then you can't take advantage of. So these people were not only intelligent enough to do it, they were aware of how it's done. Well, I mean, even down to the the taking of the the copper and making implements out of it. I mean, that that wasn't, you know, that 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 involved a smelting process. Not necessarily. 
it did certainly involve some metallurgical knowledge, but mm -hmm. you could do what they would call a, a uh, cold hammer. But then if you did that, you had to anneal the copper to keep it from becoming work brittle and just falling apart. Mm -hmm. So they had to have a fire hot enough to kind of almost remelt the copper, but it did not have to smelt copper from ore. In fact, it did not have to melt it completely. Just had to get it real warm. And those, those crystals in there would realign themselves into the manner that made it strong. The fact is, they made some copper that we don't know how to match today. We can make it as pure, but we can't make it with all the same characteristics. Well, you're able to even identify where copper comes from because of the level of purity, aren't you? I mean, the but mind's up in... It. And it isn't so much the level of purity, it is the types of... Um, the isotopes of the inclusions that don't belong there, or well, actually, they belong there, but they're unique to there, wherever there is. For instance, the float copper of the Keweenaw Peninsula in Michigan has a lot of silver in it. But the most amazing part is the silver is visibly a nodule within the copper, or even vice versa. And some of them are about half and half, and those are called half breeds. <laughs> <of all. laughs> Okay. Well, those the mines up there that have been, and they haven't been depleted, but I can't, I, I you gave 500,000 tons, something like that? That is one of the credible estimates. I call it credible, plausible. Okay. And there, taking... and there are a few that are much bigger than that. Wow. But uh, there is a photograph, I believe it was 1912, it's a postcard from Marquette, Michigan, and it shows one million pounds of copper bars sitting on the dock waiting for the ice to melt to be shipped out. Yeah. On, on Lake Superior. In, in fact, not quite within sight, but almost within sight of where the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. So that much copper left the Superior region all for all over the world, literally. Per year. Per year? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Waiting for the ice to melt. I missed the per year. Um. <laughs> that That's in modern times. That's in you know, 1912. In the 1850s, they were still shipping everything with a wooden boat. So the production, both the production rate and the shipping rate were a lot lower. Yet, it was the purest copper known on the planet and still is other than what is formed or what they call electrolysis smelted. They get it as pure as they can with traditional techniques and then put an electrode in there and draw pure copper to the electrode. So so the copper from Lake Superior turned up in Rome, in Greece, in Egypt, in Britain. You can't turned get the archaeologists to agree with that statement, but I agree no. with that statement. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think you've you've pretty well as as far as you know as far as my background as a teacher goes, I would be comfortable with sharing this as as you know this is a strong possibility. So let's look at it with kids, you know. Yeah, and that's um, all I'm really preaching. You know, is it absolutely for sure that you know all the copper that fueled the Bronze Age of Europe came from Michigan? 
no, it's not absolutely sure. But uh, I don't see any other sources popping up. No. And and you know the I I I I have done a lot of stuff with the giants and some people said that they were the mound builders, but after reading your book I don't think they were the mound builders, though they were found in, in a lot of mounds. Um Yeah, I think those people that were buried in the mound are probably um not full blooded giants probably mixed with the, the culture that built those mounds. I would, and there I would are a few that. burials that have both. So, Yeah. Are there any mounds that have yet to be investigated? I mean, or, or have we absolutely leveled all of them? There are some that remain undisturbed. And um, therein lies the quantity. If you believe that it is a burial, then it is a felony to find out if it's a burial. Well, won't, won't ground penetrating radar tell you if it's a burial or not? It can certainly give you some indication. There are other technologies as well. What you can discern pretty certainly is whether it is a artificial structure, whether it's a man-made earthworks. Mm-hmm. And any time that it is that, then it is subject to all the laws of NAGPRA until proven that it's, hey, no, it's just a pile of trash. Yeah, well. <laughs> and, which, and is, which is a valuable, valuable place to do research. You know, about 80% of the tablets that have been discovered have been broken tablets found in a trash heap. Wow. So, the well, others have been unbroken for the most part, and in mounds. My favorite one was a little tiny one, uh, about the size of an old-fashioned pencil eraser, if you remember those, you know, the kind of holding one hand. Yeah. This one was about an inch and a half by an inch and a quarter, and it's called the Grave Creek Stone, and it has, I believe, 31 characters on in a language, or I should say a script, that is pretty much unknown. But mm-hmm. H.R. Schoolcraft thought he knew what it was. And did so did Barry, Barry Fell, for that matter. I was going to say, did Barry Fell look at it? <laughs> yep. And uh, so is uh, Alan Wilson from Wales. And he, he interpreted it a little differently than the other guys did. So I, it's really hard to say that it's impossible to say that there's a consensus on what it actually is. There's pretty strong indications that it is a memorial to mm-hmm. the person in the upper chamber because that's where it was. There were two chambers. Well, then, a lot of the, the connections that you've made and they're valid are in the burial techniques of, of the people. Indeed. Uh, the stone box graves, I think, is where you're going with that. Yeah. yeah stone box graves, typically it's slabs of limestone. Some of them cleaved pretty carefully to form, well, a box, hence the name, and uh, they're throughout the Ohio Valley into parts of the Mississippi proper valley, um, Tennessee, Cumberland, Wabash. It was uh, a common technique beginning in about 600 AD to bury people in this stone box. 
and it wasn't for another 200 to 300 years that they started putting anything in there with them. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time in Wales, people were being buried in you know, stone boxes with no artifacts. And uh, the, the construction technique is identical. Both places are plagued with acidic soil conditions. So mm-hmm. when you found a body in the it was not in good shape. But up until you know the 1970s, people were still finding them, documenting them, and photographing them. Uh, they were long people. Yeah. Seven, seven and a half footers. Not, not uncommon. Well, and, and in the, especially in the 1800s, they kept digging up the, the, the bones of the giants, and they, they, you know, almost constantly they'd say the head fit over the head of a, of a normal man. And, yeah. you know, so few of those bones remain. The, the Smithsonian has taken charge of them um, very well. So that uh, so well that they won't show them to anybody, and you know they don't admit that they exist. Correct. Which is horrifying, and and I would assume with the little people as well. Yep. Um, and NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, it's not just the bones that have to go back into the grave or back into the ground. And undisclosed locations. It is also many of the lithic and earthenware and ceramic artifacts that are considered burial goods that are supposed to leave those public collections. But but don't how do how do they actually prove that it was a tribe member? That's a great question. <laughs> um, DNA is the go to, I'll quote this, science, unquote, um, to determine whether someone from 9,500 years ago is related to the guy who lives over here today. And <laughs> that's... Wait a minute, the only way, well, oh, okay, you can get it from teeth, you can get it from bones, and if they're alive, you can get it from spit. But, I mean, I have 2% Native American. I don't know what tribe it is. So that means that if I die and I'm buried and, and I'm dug up at some point in time, an, a, a Native American tribe could claim me? Yeah, they could. They probably would not, but they could. <laughs> um, I, I doubt they would no, either. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually being serious. And it's not a... It's not a uh, to denigrate you or them. That's not the point. The point is they have these unspecified. No, they're not. They are specified. Uh, they have these rules of if you're not tw- at least 25%, then you probably aren't really one of us. Yeah, <laughs> and if no. you're, and, and, and it's, and that's practical. It's, you know, I kind of agree with it. I don't know. I've never had my DNA run for origin. I've had a run for paternity, but <laughs> no, that doesn't count. <laughs> and it um, didn't. It, no. it, and it didn't in that case. But well, that's um, good. no, actually, it was a disappointment, kind of. But still, um, 
No, I don't know where I come from. I, I know the family lore and I know uh-huh. the genealogy, so I would I would feel pretty safe that there's probably some R one B in me someplace. Uh-huh. Um so so these Indian tribes when 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 a, a graveyard or something is discovered, do the local tribes then immediately start court action? Or, I mean, don't the archaeologists get a run at this before the tribe gets in there? Not usually. Not anymore. Wow. Um, And that had to do very specifically with a case that uh, occurred in Kentucky. And it was called the Slack Farm. And that was the family name, Slack. And someone had, uh, the family had collected artifacts for generations. And they had two barns full. And this got people's attention. And someone offered them a considerable amount of money to say, hey, I'd like to just you know, come in with a backhoe and start stripping. Well, it turned out that probably some member of the family had told these guys, hey, it's a graveyard. It's laid out like a graveyard. All the mm-hmm. graves have gravestones. Oh, wow. We, we know where all 63 hundred of them are <laughs> now think about that go out to any city today and find a graveyard with 6300 graves in it and tell me the population of that city today yeah <laughs> it's amazing i mean when when you stop and you think of um, these, these are huge numbers and well it knowing- was the only graveyard in the in the area in the immediate there are at least three in the immediate area like and where are the buildings? I mean, you you know, you got the you got the dead people. Are are there are there ruins of any sort that that there, there was a large platform mound. It was erased. Uh, there were a number of houses. At least the locations for I think twenty seven of them are known, and that's just a slack farm. But this is at the confluence of the Ohio and the Wabash, and there's like a forty square mile piece of this used to be city. This, and that's this. all there is left. So how, and, and you couldn't carbon date, so you don't know how old the culture we was. That I brought this one up because yes, we can, and we oh. know, we know that that culture only lasted about three hundred years. So wow. So you can compare that to say Philadelphia today. It's about well reaching three hundred years of age. Chase. And it's about eight square miles. <laughs> but <laughs> how? See, the, what 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 begins to get to one is that over the last nine thousand years, there have been huge communities, cities, towns that and you know that spread for hundreds, maybe thousands of miles, and. Yeah. You know, they rose up and they fell down. And the only thing that, you know, they they left some signs that they had been there, but not many. And nobody cares enough to figure out who, who they were or where they came from or when they were here. Well, I'll never accomplish all of that, but I'm <laughs> going to keep trying. 
You've they, made the, the where they where they were, where they came from, where they went, that might be such a smear we'll never figure. What they did, we can look at parts of that. Well, the DNA, the DNA might give us some answers yet, but not the way people are looking at it. Well, I think I think you just said something, you know, very profound. You know, okay, so what they were, and and they were here, and we know they were here, among other things, because a lot of them are dead here. But um, where did they go? What what became of their culture? Um, uh, there, there's a strong tradition that the Welsh, and this is Prince Matic, King Arthur II of 570 AD, that his followers were assimilated, the ones that survived, which was were assimilated into the native population. The Romans, the part part of their culture, probably assimilated. The Irish monks, one or two of them tried to assimilate with that. When um when um, the uh, the Clark expedition was sent out. Weren't they told? Didn't Je- Jefferson ask them to look for Celtic speaking tribes? Very specifically, Welsh speaking. Welsh, tribes. Welsh. Okay. And yes, he did. Uh, he also commissioned Meriwether Lewis to look for dinosaur, mastodons, elephant. Oh. Uh, and break music. Yes, break music. We'll be back in about three minutes. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us! They're gonna kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they a government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine revolution radio where information never sleeps you called down the thunder well now you've got it you tell them i'm coming and hell's coming with me you hear hell's coming with me revolution Roundtable Live, Monday through Friday, 1 a.m. till 4 a.m. Eastern Time. Bring your mind, bring your ideas, bring your voice. King Arthur had nothing on us here at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com.
The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Welcome back. This is Nightlight. And if you like what you're hearing, click over to the support page and make a donation to help us keep this amazing station up and running. Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com is totally listener supported. From the owner to the host to the producers who we can't live without to the staff, all are working here because we love the work and are dedicated to putting on out quality material for all of you. Be it large or small, every donation is greatly appreciated and helps us all keep on supplying information and material to educate and hopefully enlighten you that hasn't been found anywhere else. Um, <clears throat> Rick, I have a question. We we were talking about um, we were talking about Lewis and Clark, yes. and I, you did mention them in your book and and go into quite a bit of detail. Um, was Sacagawea real or? <laughs> Oh, yes, absolutely. She, okay. she saved the mission on at least two different occasions. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't notice you mentioned her, and I thought, holy mackerel, please tell me she was real. <laughs> oh, yeah, she, she was. Um, <clears throat> let's see, what were her skills? Well, she could speak uh, something like 13 languages. Now, granted, she was like 14 years old. Think about oh that one. Yeah, she's never portrayed that way, but she was a very young girl and pregnant and uh, saved the mission on at least, I mean, completely salvaged the mission on two different occasions. In one case, one of the boats overturned and she saved all the all of the uh, the ledgers, all of the the records, the journals. Wow. Um, on another occasion, she probably kept them all from getting killed just by you know, being calm mm-hmm. and, and translating well. Uh, well. No, that makes me feel better because you didn't mention her. And I thought, wow, I wonder if, you know. Oh, oh, yeah. She was very, in fact, she was probably the most real in many ways member of the expedition because she was not tainted with all this other crap. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. but you, you mentioned that I put a lot of detail in it. I did because it is the epitome of what is wrong with how this government and its structure pursue science. They don't. They don't pursue it. They control it. Exactly. Jefferson sent Clark and Lewis West with a mission. Actually, it was two missions. One of them was a public mission. It was a letter that they carried, and it described what they were supposed to do with what they found. And if they found something that threatened the sovereignty or security of the United States, they were, by any means possible, to get a ciphered message back to Jefferson, not to Washington, D.C. He would accept it to uh 
Secretary Knox, Secretary of War, Henry Knox. But other than that, no, it was just Jefferson. So that tells me that, oh, they must have had something undercurrent that was also in the mission, but not in the public description of the mission. Yeah. The Spanish figured that out real early. The English and the French said, okay, yeah, go with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here, here's your letters of passage. Uh, letters of Mark, actually. The Spanish would not issue them. In fact, they sent out hunting parties looking for Lewis and Clark. They did not find them. They wow. did find they did find other American officers surveying other parts of the Louisiana Territory. Well, and maybe a little beyond. But um, and they also found that this is still the Spanish, or it, actually at, at that point in time, the Mexicans found a number of U.S. citizens who were invading Mexican territory and then, well, they arrested him and they took him as far from the United States as they could and still keep him in Mexico. And they were bailed out by one general John Wilkins, who was also an agent for the Spanish crown all the time that he was a general in the U S army. Well, you know, one of the things that, that fascinated me, and I guess because I haven't, I haven't dug deep enough into this, but I certainly will continue to dig. Um, you know, my, my thought was, okay, so we got the Declaration of Independence signed and we became a sovereign nation and everything kind of just flowed naturally from there. The reality is that's not the case, that, that, that we, this country struggled for a very long time to, to really establish itself as a nation. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and convince everybody that it was actually a viable nation. I mean, at the same time that Jefferson was sending Lewis and Clark West into, well, Indian territory, quote unquote, he was also fighting the Barbary pirates. Okay, he was sending the very newly minted U.S. Navy to fight the Barbary pirates. That's U.S. Navy and U.S. Marines. They always existed. <laughs> They're the only ones that are spelled out in the Constitution as a military force for the United States. The only standing forces in the Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Jefferson had a lot on his plate, but this is this is I got to admire the guy in this regard. He knew how to keep information compartmentalized. He sent Lewis and Clark west, telling them that they could send him ciphered messages. That meant that whatever cipher system they used, they had their key for that cipher system. And he had a key, the same key, to decipher their messages. Now, the journals of the Lewis and Clark expedition are vast. When you go to buy a copy, it's going to cost you like $1,500. Holy man. (laughs) <laughs> um, it's vast and it's not all there Lewis much of Lewis's journal is lost when he was uh, going back to defending he was on his way to Washington D.C. when he committed suicide by shooting himself twice with a muzzle-loading pistol wait wait he shot himself twice <laughs> twice with a muzzle-loading pistol it's a with a muzzle-loading pistol well um, <clears throat> then he was a very talented man Indeed, he was. He, he most certainly was that. Um, anyway, there's a lot missing from those journals. There is also 
some journals that were written by sergeants instead of officers because, well, they only had the two officers. Um, and one of them had to call himself a lieutenant even though he was really a captain because they could only have one captain for such a small core of 40. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, several of the sergeants were writing journals themselves. And in one instance, on one particular date, they described finding a giant fish skeleton along the, uh, I believe that was on the Missouri, and they were describing it and what would happen to the samples that they were taking, specimens they were collecting and boxing and sending them back to Washington City. Yeah. And the description, the journal entries were so nearly completely identical as to have been like a practice session for the cipher. So they weren't just they weren't just learning to keep a journal. They were learning to use the cipher just in case both those officers were taken out during this journey. <laughs> they needed someone who could carry on, at least in some limited fashion. That's just good military thinking. Oh yeah. So I found a number of entries, and, and by the way, I don't have $15 to buy a copy of the entire journal, but what is online, I found uh, a number of entries that seem to reflect more practice sessions. For instance, they describe a hunting foray, and, and two or three of the sergeants would keep this record. That these hunters went out, and they brought in this game, and they'd say, one elk, and they'd spell out one elk, mm-hmm. and then they'd use numeral two buffalo and it spell out seven geese. So there was there, whatever the cipher was, it involved numeral replacement for letters or possibly numeral replacement for syllables, which yeah. is the, which is the grand cipher. That's the grand cipher. And you have to have the key for that message or it will never work. <laughs> Which wow. is, yeah, and, 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 and that message can be, they might use the same key for the entire expedition, but whoever's at the other end has to have that exact key. Every number is, if it's grand cipher, is a, the equivalent of a syllable within the language. How many syllables are there within our language? So how did they get these reports back? Because there were, you know, there was no postal service or anything. That's correct. And in 1804, Six, eight, no, 1804, uh, at Vincennes, Indiana, which is 27 miles that way from me. Um, governor William Henry Harrison, who at that time was governor of the Indiana Territory and for very temporary, also the governor of the Louisiana Territory. So he was under, he was controlling three fourths of the land owned by the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, he passed through an order to get a couple of Indians uh, up to the great chief, send them all the way to Washington. We presume, we just go ahead and presume that they were there delivering a message for Lewis and Clark. Ah, okay. And that was part of the letter that he sent out with Lewis. If you, you know, if you need to get word back. Just, you know, find some of those Indians that, well, need some blankets or something. Oh, God. <laughs> and I'm, I'm only half joking here. No, I know that. Um, 
it just it just seems so amazing that so much was going on during that time frame and oh yeah well, the most amazing part of it is Jefferson also had, you know, 432 other correspondents each with its own cipher key. And he kept them in his hand. Wow. <laughs> That's the kind of intellect you're dealing with. with him. Well, yeah, and he and we didn't have enough money in the coffers to actually buy the Louisiana Purchase. And so he, he managed to find the money. Yeah, he, he borrowed... He, managed a loan from the Bank of England, which is not the nation of England, never has been, never will be. Uh -huh. It's the Bank of England. And he borrowed, I believe it was $10 million for a $15 million purchase price to give to Napoleon of France for the you know, Louisiana territory. Now, Napoleon was at that moment in a deadly freaking war with England. So, <laughs> so the Bank of England, who is the actual engineer in all of this, yeah. provided money to Napoleon through America so that the nation of England would have to borrow money from the Bank of England to fight a bigger war with France. And that wow. is the way our world works, folks. <laughs> yeah, I hope we paid them back. Um yeah, actually, we did. Well, that's a good thing. Um, so, so they did find Welsh, uh, Welsh-speaking Indians. They found tribes that that actually they, did. They found a Mandan as one particular tribe that was described later, eighteen thirty-four, as speaking Welsh. Now, there was only one person amongst the entire Corps of Discovery who had any Welsh language skills, and that was kind of a being generous description. But they all described, those who wrote in the journals about the Mandan, uh, a tall, fair-skinned, fair-haired, blonde, blue-eyed or green-eyed, sometimes red-haired, blonde-eyed, or blue-eyes, good-looking people. Mm -hmm. Good-looking enough, they probably left behind some genetics. Probably. <laughs> but their boats were the same as those in Europe. As the Welsh coracles in particular. Yes. Yeah. So there were other cultural connections. Now, if you get into the folklore, as told by the Mandan and conveyed to uh, John Sevier of Tennessee, governor, and, well, colonel, they had a book, or actually a series of books, that they could not read. That may have been one of the things that was rifled from Lewis's collection when he was separated from his collection. Mm -hmm. right before he died. Um, that is one of the speculations. Un unconfirmed, probably never can truly confirm it. But it's a very intriguing speculation, to say the least. And if this had come out and could be validated, it would mean that the English didn't have really the power to sell the nation because there was already a Christian community here that's a big part of it the other part of it would be and this was this was pulled out of the shelves the stacks of the libraries in the tower of london in the 16th century by john d uh supporting queen elizabeth the first who was trying to counter 
Spain's claim to North America because, mm -hmm. oh, wait, look, hey, hey, we already have a record of having been there. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that may actually be accurate if you consider the Welsh, but the Welsh are not the English. They never have been and they never will be. Um, the English are invaders <laughs> from uh, Germany, Normandy, and elsewhere. The Welsh have been there since 600 BC, give or take, maybe longer. So wow. they had they had their own language, they had their own alphabet, they had their own history, which the English are doing still doing their best to absolutely eradicate. Oh yeah, but wouldn't wouldn't then Rome have the biggest claim? Um. Because Which you mean the, the, the one that dissolved in 426 AD? Yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about the Pope. Um, I mean, well, yeah, that, that's why he wrote one of the popes wrote Terra Nullis. It's like, uh, let's go get it again. Now, I, I'm thoroughly convinced that somewhere in the Vatican archive, they have very sophisticated and detailed records of many of the cultures that crossed that ocean and, and the other ocean. Because you I, know, the, 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 the Catholics were already established in the Philippines in the late 16th century. Yeah. I, I mean, that that would seem to me that they would have a better, I mean, if if that the, the Ninth Legion was here, all right, so maybe they weren't Christian. They were just Christian-ish then. Not um, all of them were Christian. That's accurate. But a number yeah. of them would have been what what we call today the Chaldee. Yeah. And, you know, the oldest Christian sect. Um, because if they arrived there in 43 AD, and they did, and they were there for the next 70 odd years, and they were, they acculturated to whatever was there. So by the by 117 AD, they were speaking Welsh. They were mm -hmm. singing Welsh songs. They were eating Welsh food. They were wearing Welsh clothing. They adapted to the Welsh food because, you know, as we stay in a place for several generations, even our DNA adapts to it. Well, let me let me ask you this then. I mean, when when the pilgrims, when the colonists came in the sixteenth, seventeenth century, whenever they came did not they run into any of the remnants of all of these other cultures that had happened? What they ran into was a whole bunch of open fields that were going untended because all the people who tended them had died of plague or smallpox or fever or one of the other diseases. Now, not necessarily by the people. Okay, I'm losing you again. Okay. Let's okay. See if I can adjust my mic a little. Is that yep. better? Yep, you're right. back. You're you're right yeah, here. Yeah, the, the pilgrims and, and the other folks who settled there. We hear a lot about the pilgrims. They were that that was just one boatload of, among about twenty five mm -hmm. that came ashore in that general hundred hundred miles of coastline. Anyway, the pilgrims encountered empty fields. You know, and when I say fields, these, these were little garden plots. They they would go out and they'd plant a corn. Uh, one grain of corn, and as it grew up, then they plant beans and squash around it so that 
those two could hang on to the stock of the corn. Okay. They didn't plant row crops. They didn't understand row crops at all. They, they still don't like to plant row crops. At any rate, they died. So their garden plots were ready to be replanted by the new folks arriving from the ocean. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, 50, 100 years before that, yeah, this was a densely populated High commerce, trade, transport, communications, population. Yeah. 20, 30 million people lived on this continent at that time. And I mean, they didn't, they didn't just go out and scratch a living hunting and foraging. No, no. They were planting and planning and planing lumber with lithic tools. I mean, they, they could make dimension lumber. Uh, weren't they it, weren't they also trading with other you know cultures too? I absolutely. Mean, they, well, I'll, <clears throat> I'll give you my my favorite example is the quote unquote Mississippian culture, platform mounds and such. Mm-hmm. Um, they drank a form of cocoa. Oh, wait a minute, cocoa did not grow here. No, it it grew twenty four hundred miles away by land. Or yes. 918 miles by sea, and and oh by the way, it's perishable because of the way it's fermented. Um, so it, you know, it wasn't more than a couple months old when they got it in the Mississippi Valley or Mississippian culture, I should say, because it stretched all the way from Florida up to Wisconsin, where where this stuff was consumed, presumably by the elites. We know that in when. The Spanish got into Mexico City. Montezuma was drinking a lot of it. Did I mention that it was fermented? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. And for for many of the cultures, particularly of the Mexico cultures, cocoa was a form of currency. Oh, it was a consumable currency. So, and it had its own packaging. It, like, you know, you go buy this uh, cola drink that's in this, uh, uh, what would you call it, a, 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 a specific form, almost modeling a female form. And you know what that drink is without me telling you the name. Yes. <laughs> well, they had packaging that convincing for this drink a thousand years ago. So, yeah, they, they were sophisticated not only in transport and communication, but also in packaging, marketing, and uh, preservation. And where did all of these millions of people go? Like They all died off? About 82% of them, by some estimate, going back to Laura and Mark Nicholas, uh, died off due to introduced sickness. Someone introduced plagues that were just, you know, pandemic across both continents. Wow. In 1421. And it was on purpose. Well, that's what we did to the, to the Indians. We gave them smallpox blankets. Yeah, it didn't work, but yeah, it was intended yeah. It was intentional. It just it wasn't uh, weaponized the way they thought it was. 
Wow. They, they did other things too. Uh, so, they, so, so that, that massive culture that was here died out. Did not the colonists find the remnants of their society? Oh, certainly. Uh, well, as an example, not very far from you at American Stonehenge, you had this maybe 4,800 year old site yeah. where they, where they had some pretty sophisticated quarrying techniques. They had uh, crystals that the one piece of quartz crystal is almost certainly not from there. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had astronomical alignments that are completely consistent, even though there's 4,800 years difference between mm -hmm. when it was built and what we're seeing today is completely consistent to predict I don't know, like some, something near 418 different events that are repetitive events. So, uh, yeah, these were sophisticated people. Oh, oh, speak, speak of the henges, the wooden henges. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> there were wooden hinges uh, and wooden circles. Uh, sometimes it was just poles set around a central pole. Sometimes yeah. it was an entire enclosed area, not only with poles, but also with quasi gates, I guess would be the right way to say it. Um, people have questioned what this was for as long as it's been you know, known. I think there were two or three different functions. One of them had to do with the signaling the tallest pole would be the best place to have an observer to look at the incoming messages and to send messages out. Uh -huh. The gates, because, you know, you're looking at what is between two posts. You yeah. have a, uh, in, in terms of, in military terms, it would be an area of regard. You're going to watch this and ignore everything else. Now, there was another way of doing that, but that was the simplest way. And it's called a uh, <clears throat> a geometric filter for light because you're only going to look through this window. It's not right up at your eye. It's, it's a window that is away from you and defines the field of view that you're going to use. Mm -hmm. You can also do that with a piece of pipe. But remember, the natives didn't have you know pipe rolling technologies, at least not as we think of them today, where you take metal and you form a pipe. They had a lot of lithic tools and they would bore a hole through a rock and make a pipe not to smoke things but to mm -hmm. look like you would look through a telescope yeah and and it does the same thing for the geometric filter effect mm -hmm. it achieves it achieves that technical goal so a lot of the hinges had to do not only with astronomical alignments, but also with spatial alignments in relation to other parts of the environment, whether it's the next city over the next hill over a mound, you know, 10, 11 miles away, uh -huh. uh, or a mountain 84 miles away, where we've actually documented these distances for sending signals, reflected light, or in the case of a few of the uh, let's see, ancient wonders of the world, yeah, um, <laughs> hundreds of miles out to sea. The, the, the lighthouse at Alexandria was rumored by contemporaneous writers to be visible 
for 150 miles out to sea, day or night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, wow. And if we don't know how they did that, maybe we should try to figure it out. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I don't know why they're not. I really don't. You know, I, I ran across something on it was actually on Facebook today. Someone was touting, uh, you know, if we go to war and nuclear war and, and there's a big EMP and all of the communications are down, what are we going to do? <laughs> hey, you know what? I have an answer. <laughs> Does anybody else have an answer? If there's no radios and no phones working and no wires actually hooked up to anything that works anymore... Mm-hmm. How are we going to do this? Well, well gonna, you, you know, we, we're going to have to revert to what we've done before. We're going to have to go back to Polybius's method, five by five. You go, go to any signal signalman outrating signalman rating in any outfit in the military, and you'll know what reading you five by five means. Mm-hmm. But they don't know why they say it. They know that reading you five by five means I have a perfect signal. It goes back to Polybius, who broke up both the Latin and Greek alphabets into five rows of five columns with a different letter in each one. Now, today we have 26 letters in our alphabet. Okay, we just combine the I and the J as, you know, the same block. Yeah. So if I say to you two, three, two, four, I'm saying hi. Row two, <laughs> letter three, and letter four. Hi. It is really that simple, and uh, and and it is like telegraphy. You can you'll never achieve quite as good a word count or rate. Yeah. Because you're using different technologies and different coding methods. Because Morse code just does not work that well with mirror. Sorry. Sorry, all yeah. you pilot training steer guys. It just does not work that well. No. Uh, it works really well with a telegraph key because that's what it was designed for. Thank you, Samuel Morse. Oh, yes. wait. I think he got it from somebody else. But anyway, um, go back to Polybius method five by five. Lay out your alphabet. Now, if you want to cipher it, you just move things around a little bit. But uh-huh. anyway. Uh, make sure everybody has a key. Yeah, good idea. So the you know in the event of a big EMP or a coronal mass ejection or any of those things that kind of you know says hey the electronics age is past. Yeah. <laughs> we still I, have that method. Would be a better time, I think. Actually, not well, that I want to give up electricity, I, heat, and the internet yeah. because I don't. Well, I haven't figured out how to send cute cat videos over the mirror like thing. But. Yeah, that's <laughs> well. Well, it 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 amazes me that that people don't understand that that this much technology was actually here and in use, and and yet we considered the the Indians savages, and. We were indoctrinated that they were savages. You know, the people who met them 
and, and actually talked to them and even worked with them, they don't feel that way. And Heck they no. never did. And, and probably more spiritually oriented than the people that were here. So that, that came here, that, that came here. Yeah. Well, it's certainly not spiritually, uh, expressive in the same ways. Well, yes and no. They had a relation with nature. They they were very attuned to nature and how to plant. And, and they always asked permission. Well, I don't know if, if every tribe is the same, but but most of them would, would kind of ask permission before it took a life of an animal so that they could feed their families. I mean, they didn't they didn't hunt for sport. They hunted for survival. They also hunted a little bit for prestige. They okay. certainly had prestige hunts. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it was trophy only. It wasn't. It was. Um, and, you know, the, the in the venison world, the buck does not taste nearly as good as the doe. Just saying. So that big rack of antlers. Yeah. It doesn't mean squat to me. <laughs> Just say, oh, okay. no offense, guys, no offense, but if you want to improve your uh, meat locker, get the does. If you want to improve the the overall gene pool of the herd, get the does. <laughs> but most people don't want it. They want the antlers. Well, you know, I've only eaten deer once and I kept thinking of Bambi, so it was really not one of my more enjoyable meals. <laughs> Um, I am a meat eater. I am too, but Bambi kept coming into my mind. <laughs> yeah, if I'm, I'm not. If I was hungry. Is, other than summer sausage, I'm not a big fan of venison. I've had chili that was pretty good. And if um, I was hungry, I think I would learn to, to, to like it. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Newport Tower because there's been such um, consternation about who created it and why. And it, it, a lot of thought keeps coming go, back to Roman soldiers. Uh, well, you, and you can't leave out the Knights Templar, um, the, oh, yeah. the Portuguese sailors. Uh, there, there's a whole raft of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to say, I don't know who, but let's go to why. Okay. <laughs> because right. I, I, why is actually a little more, um, wow. It, it is not easier to explain. It is not easier to research, but it has more clues than does who. So okay. let's go with, we'll start with clues. It has two chimneys in it. Therefore, it is not a grain mill. <laughs> you do not have fire around flour. No. <laughs> so let's just... Write that one off. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's been everything from uh, we're going to dry fish in it. It's like, okay, you might smoke fish in it. Um, you might, you know, any kind of process, meat processing thing, you, you would smoke it because, well, you've got two chimneys. But when you're smoking meat, you don't actually let the smoke escape through a chimney. So we probably should rule that one out too. Um, so, there are no other buildings that 
look to be connected or a part of it. It just stands alone. Pretty much. There are, there are a couple of buildings that have stone in the foundation that appear to be much older than uh, the buildings that it's in or under. And some mm -hmm. of those are 300 years old. So <laughs> 340 years old, actually. Okay. Um, so the Newport Tower, what can it be? Well, it can certainly be a lighthouse because it's overlooking uh, basically Long Island Sound, the entry to Long Island Sound. Right. And, and it has a direct line of sight to Block Island, uh, which is about 24 miles, which is about the limit of over water being able to see how far can you go. That is about the cutoff. You've hit your wall okay. for, any, for anything close to sea level. Now, if you go mountaintop to mountaintop, all bets are a little different. Oh, yeah. You go to the center of Block Island and you find ruins. Ah. <laughs> yeah, and you, and if you follow that line back to Long Island, well, at basically Montauk, mm -hmm. the Hay Museum at one time had two pillars of stone that had been removed from right there ah. that had writing on them, and I cannot find a good description of what the writing looked like, but they did not describe it as pictographs. So, okay. syllabic, alphabetic, something. Yeah. Wow. So, my contention is that Newport Tower, whether that's the original structure or some replacement, is in a spot, a terrain feature that was part of this network and still could be, incidentally. Wow. So, if you keep following that line, Further, you go pretty much across the bottom of, well, New York City okay. into New Jersey, uh, and you just keep following that line far enough, and you're going to run into Cahokia, Illinois. <laughs> Okie doke. <laughs> no kidding. It runs that far. I, in fact, I believe I haven't found any structures yet. I think I can show that it goes all the way out to Nantucket. Wow. Well, now you've identified more than 45 ancient fortresses uh, using, yeah, <laughs> using this line of sight stuff. Yes. Now it's not, they're not all along that line. They're along, okay. most of them are along the rivers. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are, and uh, let's just go to what I'm doing in Ancient American Magazine as an example. Okay. I'm on the, the September issue will be the 16th contiguous article I've done on the ancient fortresses of the Ohio Valley. And that includes all the tributaries. Right now I've been working on the Wabash, which is you know pretty close to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going in detail on a lot of these tributaries and I've, we talked earlier about the Slack Farm, which is right across from the the Wabash at the Ohio. So, if you're on that platform at the Slack Farm, that platform mound that doesn't exist anymore, you would be looking across the Ohio up the Wabash. Okay. Across forty odd square miles of city. So the Wabash, 
was something important, as was the entire Ohio. Where these fortresses are, typically, are places that you can defend or even prevent traffic on whatever river it's situated on. I can find, uh, so far, about 45 on the Ohio itself. I, I should say the Ohio and Mongahela itself, themselves. Are they basically the same time frame, do you think? Or were they? Yes. Yes, they okay. are. And, and the archaeologists are the ones who have confirmed this. They run from 1st century BC, uh, 1st century AD up to about 5th century AD, mid 5th century AD, 450 wow. or so. And then there was another later, hey, let's fix these up in about 700. And it was just kind of a half hearted effort, I might add. Mm -hmm. But all those things are datable with C14 and other methods. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty much contemporaneous with each other. They all went up at about the same time. They all got maintained at about the same time. So that means to me that a large political entity was in control of all of them at the same time. And you're talking thousands of years ago. Yeah, a couple thousand years ago is when they started. There wow. were uh, there were others, not in this particular valley, that were much older. Watson Break in Louisiana, 3800 B.C. Poverty Point in Louisiana, 3000 B.C. And, and so... And, and, and we're talking to, the same level of sophistication. So, so we're not talking... See, most people think going back that far... You know, we were living in caves and had, had you know, bearskins that we wore. And it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like there was a great deal of sophistication here. And oh, there certainly was. And not just here. Let, let's go to the Olmec in southern Mexico. At the okay. same time that Watson Brake, 3,800 years ago, I'm sorry, 3,800 B.C., same time that they were going strong, the Olmec were grinding lenses for optical telescopes. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> Were they sophisticated? That's a, that's that's the one. Oops, not lost my headset. That's the one uh, culture that appeared out of nowhere in the Americas so far. Uh huh. There, there's no known background origin culture for it. Just boom, there they were. And this is the same outfit that made all those giant stone heads. That most people say look African. Yeah. Well, well, I think they look Polynesian, but hey, that's just me. No, I would, I would go along with you on that. Grinding lenses, wow. Yeah. So, so they could uh, use sunlight and start a fire. Oh, big woo. Yeah. Well, it's power. Yeah. It's, in that case, it's projected power. And it's not, it's not fire is magic. It's like, this is a tool. It could be both. I mean, well, yeah. You know, Arthur C. Clarke had it right. If, if you, if you are not sophisticated in the art of this technology, then it's going to appear as magic. To you. Okay. I'll go along with that. <laughs> so this is at about the same time that in Kansas and uh, West Texas, they were making skin-type rattles for shaman use. 
and they uh-huh. would put a piece. They would put a piece of um, crystal inside that, and when they rattled it, it would glow in the dark. So they had their own magic, just because they knew where to get that crystal. I think I, I think there's something that that you know they we have been taught that the brains of of people who existed back then just weren't as developed and speech wasn't as developed and, and, you know, you're proving that, that, that it would be just like taking you or I and putting us back in those times and having us figure out how to do something that, that the tech, that, that, that the mind power was, and the sophistication was absolutely there and used and used. Yeah. So the only way to, uh, indicate that you'll never prove it to the satisfaction of the scholars, but you can do experimental archaeology and say, okay, these are the materials that they had. They had, you know, the same anatomy that we had. We can use the tools the same way they did. And look what we made with this. Yeah. <laughs> and well, you I go mean, stand, you go stand over there and let me shine this at you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, 9,000 years ago, the, the copper mines. I mean, yeah, they were, mi- where they did were mining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all over yeah, they the were world, mining. Apparently. Yeah, they're they're they were mining and they were dewatering mines. They could pump the water out of the mine so they didn't drown in them. Uh, and that that particular technique and technology did not change for another five thousand years because the Romans were still using it in the Iberian Peninsula. In the first century AD. Well, yeah, and look at the Roman, the, the Hanging Gardens of Hammurabi. I mean, he he pumped water up so that he could create waterfalls coming down, and and he he had the hydraulics working. So it's it's not like um, our brain suddenly evolved to this point. The, the brain was put to good use, and it it created amazing stuff. And yep to not give credit to those different levels of, of cultures within this country is a sin. Well, you know, uh, I go back to, everybody says, well, they did not know how to navigate on an ocean, so therefore they could not have been here. It's like, yes, they did. You do not know how to navigate on an ocean. That does not mean <laughs> they did not. <clears throat> so when you go back to 100 BC, and you look at the Antikythera device that mm-hmm. was at least 36, maybe as many as 41 gears that were completely enmeshed. Some of them actually moved in elliptical patterns so that they could predict very accurately eclipses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they would show the position of the then known planets on any date. Well, yeah. to me, that is a pretty damn sophisticated navigation tool, people. But- well, look at the it's, Aztec calendar. That's another example, base 20 yeah. <laughs> mathematics, by the way, which is why their signal system did not look like Polybius, because their number system is different. But, but you know, I, I just, you, you, you got to write a history book. <laughs> Seriously. And, I'll, write, and, I'll write it in Kipi, a Kupi. Uh, no, strings, no, seriously, read, read you, you, you got to write a history book that gives a more accurate history of what this, what, what this country was and 
what we have made it and and what we have lost because of arrogance and stupidity. I mean, we've I'll give got you an example of what we've lost in the last century, just in the oh. past century. Okay. My grandfather graduated the eighth grade and he went to work as the county surveyor. Now, the other guy had been elected, but my granddad did all the work. He was what? He was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. He was doing trigonometry to the level of what today most college students cannot handle. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. And <laughs> that's in one century. Well, and he could- <laughs> look, at, look at also we have all this technology and kids don't learn how to think for themselves because of it. That's true. I've, I've heard some good arguments both ways. I don't like any of them. Well, I taught people, school and I. The hardest, I, yeah. And you know, the hardest thing to teach is how to learn. Right. How to think. And, yep. and because of television and computers and everything else, these kids don't know how to think. And if I, if I had kids today, they would be homeschooled. I wouldn't let public schools get a hand on my kids at all, ever. Of course, they may never get a job too, but <laughs> you know, besides that. Well, but, you know, I, I, I like the Mark Twain quote. I got an education in spite of going to school. Yes, exactly. And, and I have to tell you, I have two master's degrees and everything I know I have taught myself. Nothing that I learned in college or graduate school has been of any use to me. So, so I think that, that, I mean, I did teach for 25 years, but, but I taught special ed. So, but, but when you get right down to it, you know, surviving and, and creating and using your mind is something that the schools do not teach the kids anymore. They teach them how to live in, in, in cubicles. And so you have, they teach them how to exist in cubicles because I do not consider, I worked that job for a long time. Okay, so so they they survive, but they don't thrive, and Correct. so you need to write you need to write a history book and put everything right. You well, really do. I would love to do that. I've been working on a couple of different books. One of them very specifically focused on the line of sight communications thing, uh-huh. uh, but everything else seems to be taking precedence on it. Um, and of course, I'm still right for ancient American. Absolutely. Um, Rick, thanks so much. We're going to have to do this again. Let me know when. I'll be happy to. I sure will. Thanks so much. Good night, Uh man. Good night. Radio at freedomslips.com. We'll be right back after this message. This is Barbara DeLong, host of Nightlight Radio, inviting you to join me on a cosmic journey, exploring a metaphysical montage of spiritual material, covering everything from the mundane to the magical. UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between, including spiritual readings for those who seek enlightenment. 
Let Nightlight provide you with equal measure of light, love and laughter, insight, wisdom and inspiration. Monday nights, 10 to 12 p.m. Eastern, right here on Studio B, Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com.